Hello and welcome to the Josias Podcast, Episode 5, Part 2. Before we get started, we wanted to remind our listeners that if they have questions or comments, they should feel free to email us at editors at thejosias.com. We'll do our best to respond. If anyone wants to help support the Josias and help us continue the podcast and website, we have a Patreon. Links to the email address and Patreon account are available in the description. We've also included in the podcast description a list of some of the references of the books and articles discussed in Episode 5, Part 1 and 2. Welcome back to part two of episode five of the Josias podcast. I am Joel, and I'm joined once again by Potter, Edmund, and Felix. Uh, So this week we're continuing our discussion of liberalism from last week. And the music you just heard was picked out by me this time, and it's uh, from La Traviata. And it's sempre libra, which the words of which are free and aimless, I frolic from joy to joy, flowing along the surface of life's path as I please. Uh, as the day is born, or as the day uh, may die, happily I turn to new delights that make my spirit soar. But if you look at, this is from uh, uh, Anna Nutrovka, or however you say her name, from uh, the Willie Decker production of La Traviata. I think it really makes it clear what's going on here uh, very beautifully is she's lived this dissolute life and she's at a point where she's desperate because at this point she doesn't have much time left. And uh, she's trying to cling on to that old life, but already uh, she's, she's, uh, seeing that it's not going to last and it's not going to work out. And through the opera, you see her sort of redemption. And in fact, it's very touching. She, she dies with the last rites. And I thought that this was sort of appropriate for a podcast on liberalism, not just because it starts with the, the words always free, but uh, because it really is uh, sort of the heart of liberalism in some way. And I wanted to compare it with this quote of Hobbes, where he's talking about manners in the Leviathan, uh, and he doesn't by he, by manners he means those qualities of mankind that concern their living together in peace and unity. And he says there is no such thing as finis ultimus nor sumum, sumum bonum, as is spoken of in the books of the old moral philosophers. Nor can any man live any more whose desires are at an end. Uh, I'm sorry. Nor can a man any more live whose desires are at an end than he whose senses and imaginations are at a stand. Felicity is a continual progress of the desire from one object to another, the attaining of the former being still but the way to the latter. A friend of mine uh, shared that quote with me recently, and I thought it showed that their idea of freedom has a pleonexia baked into it from the beginning. It's not the attainment of an end, but it's what uh, Violetta is going for. It's the continual pursuit of delight after delight. And it ends up being exhausting and innervating. And the Willie Decker version I like in particular for, for liberalism because it, it has this giant clock in the background. And uh, uh, there's sort of this figure of, of, of death stalking the stage behind her. And uh, she's, uh, she's clearly running out of time. 
And I would like it if liberalism were running out of time. And it, in some ways, it seems like maybe maybe people are starting to rethink things. Yeah, I've I've never been a big big Verdi guy. Um, I remember we <laughs> we took kind of a perverse pride in mocking Verdi in my youth. Um, <laughs> for and and part of it is that um, although you say she has an edifying ending, in a way his his music is. Um, expresses that way of life very well because it's extremely emotional uh at the yeah it's, it's sort of at the level of, of the sensitive passions it's very uh yeah uh, there's a lot of sensuality in it but this this particular opera has some some pieces that are basically odes to traditional values and uh the the confrontation between her and uh the father uh, Germain is is really beautiful, I think, because he is touched by her innate virtue that she still possesses, and uh, he's appealing to to a sense of community and broader duty uh, than just uh, a life of pleasure. Mm. Um, and on that note, let's turn to the discussion of liberalism. The, maybe, Felix, you could recap uh, sort of the position you laid out last week. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the pairing of the Verdi opening and, and, uh, and Hobbes. There's, there's a wonderful quote from that chapter where he's, uh, chapter 11 of Leviathan, where he sums up what you just mentioned and said, it's the general inclination of mankind uh, is a restless desire for power after power that ceaseth only in death, um, which is <laughs> heartening. But of course he thought if you had a simply correct science of what the human passions were, uh, you could orient them towards peace and the Leviathan could replace every textbook at Oxford and Cambridge. And, and this would be for our better. And, and apropos of Planexia, he also says in the De Chive that the measure of correct reason uh, in, in the state of nature is is profit. Um, so I thought that's right, right, right on the money. Um, so last week I suggested I'm actually not so sure what to do with Hobbes all the time, because sometimes it sees, seems to me that cruelty is simply made impossible by Hobbes and his state of nature. Um, at least a kind of sadism is impossible. So maybe I should first mention what I mean by cruelty. Uh, cruelty might sit between pity and uh, schadenfreude as a kind of, uh, it's, it's not pain at the pain of others, it's not pleasure at the pain of others, but it's sort of indifference to the pain of others. Um, and and Hobbes, Hobbes doesn't want to allow at least uh, pleasure in the pain of others in the state of nature, it seems to me. He wants to rule it out. But Hobbes in the relationship to the liberal tradition is a pretty vexed question. Uh, sort of the first theorist of natural right, but nothing that liberals would want to claim as their government. So I don't know what to do with him, but I don't know that anyone else knows what to do with him. So last week I, I just uh, mentioned that probably, uh, in my view, uh, liberalism is primarily an ethical attitude or a, or a meta-ethics um, that says the first principle is we should be averse to cruelty. Um, and I suggested that's true, one, because uh, some liberals claim that that's the basis of liberalism. Uh, Richard Rorty and, and Judith Sklar point back to Montaigne. Um, and I think sometimes when other liberals that don't necessarily think that's the core of their liberalism, like, like John Rawls, when they have their backs to the wall, and have to defend themselves against some rival conception of politics, they'll revert to this position and say, well, you are imagining cruelties that I will just not, uh, you'll imagine, you'll countenance sufferings that I'm just not willing uh, to deal with. And I think a lot of uh, uh, the liberal response to communism and, and fascism was, was to say that, that these projects and, and the ends they have for humanity, the way they want to transform humanity, just, just involve too many cruelties. Um, so I'll just, I, I'm running long, but I want to say that there are three things, uh, there are three advantages of, of taking this position. Uh, one, it denies that liberalism is anything neutral. Uh, it denies any kind of liberal neutrality, um, because it says that liberalism is already loaded with a specific, uh, 
uh, ethical orientation. Um, secondly, I think it connects uh, what we call political liberalism with the liberal arts or with liberal education. Um, and I think these connections are made by John Henry Newman, in some way the greatest Catholic critic, critic of liberalism bar, bar none. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but Newman says that, you know, the, this, this religion of reason, the anti-dogmatic principle, what we're used to him saying is liberalism. Um, um, uh, as a matter of fact, this makes the gentleman um, uh, much more gentle uh, to others when, when this is sort of the limit. Um, and there's, there's some connection in Newman's mind, I think, between what he calls liberalism and the liberal arts, and we can talk about that. And then third, I think when we think about Newman in that way, and when we think about liberalism that way, we realize how formidable liberalism is, that it's just sort of this worldly distaste for cruelty, it's gentlemanly, it's civilized, it's somehow always been with us, um, and that Christians aren't so different from liberals at the end of the day, except that we think of cruelty totally different, because of course we're worried about uh, the fate of our eternal souls, and so we're willing to countenance all sorts of tough love that liberals aren't. And as we get later and later into liberal civilization, I think liberals are, are getting less and less uh, comfortable with uh, tough love of all kinds. So I'll leave it there, but I think those are the three advantages of uh, this position. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very good uh, recap of what we had last time. Uh, I, and I want to focus particularly on Newman. Uh, but first, there were a few uh, objections or, or reactions that last uh, part one elicited. Uh, and the first one, I think, is pretty easy. So I'll, I'll lay them all three out, and then we can go through them and sort of discuss them in term. The first one is, why are you talking about liberals? You should just talk about the left. I, I think we actually discussed that at the very beginning of the episode, but maybe we could reiterate it just to make sure we're clear on that point, because the left isn't quite synonymous with left liberals, but here in the States, it's a little different. And then the second one is, what about Kant? Kant's pretty liberal, and his uh, uh, categorical imperative and his ethic is open to being cruel in a way. Uh, and uh, the third one was uh, Susanna Black, uh, wrote a very uh, interesting sort of reply that said, it's not just cruelty. Uh, it's also this idea that starts, I think, with the romantics of authenticity, of being true, uh, true to yourself. And they understand this as, uh, as uh, sort of discovering who you are. And it's something we've talked about in the podcast previously, and even sort of touched on last time, but didn't really get into. So let's let's start with the first one, uh, the fact that here in this country, there's never really been leftists who aren't liberals. I mean, there's been a few, but it's never been a viable thing. But liberals is something different than simply left and right. The answer would simply start with something like Lenin is simply not a liberal. Uh, Lenin's... Yeah has a vision of transforming uh, the human race. Uh, the Marxists have a vision of overcoming the alienation of labor and in order to bring the world to that state uh, and, and achieve man's real species essence uh, and achieve the aims of historical materialism, they're willing to countenance all sorts of cruelty. And the, the American reaction against this, right, pretty much across the board is going to be horror. So I don't think it's um, necessarily... Uh, um, the left is what, you know, what we're talking about at all. A lot of liberals I know would consider themselves of the right. Others would consider themselves of the left. And so I'm trying to talk about a sort of shared attitude that everyone has. And I'm, I'm not quite sure that I'm coming at this as a man of the right against the left. I'm, I'm trying to say, well, what's the sort of sine qua non of people on the left and right side of the aisle in the United States? What are their shared beliefs? Confusion is for Americans. We have left versus right. But what we mean by left and right are more or less classical liberals versus sort of, you might call them progressive liberals or left liberals. Whereas in Europe, you have on the right fascists, we're not liberals. And on the far left, you have uh, communists and socialists and anarchists of various sorts. We're also not liberals. And those things have existed a little bit 
in America, but really we pretty much have at this point a liberal tradition. Yeah. I mean, the, the person who gave us that comment um, is a monarchist and his argument there in that comment is that, well, you have kind of this um, order before uh, the French Revolution and then the the terms right and left come from um, come from the revolution. The right being the ones who are loyal to the monarchy, and the left being the ones who wanted to uh, s- to start a republic. And so, in a way, all these modern movements, in in his eyes, can be viewed uh, as left. And then um, the older order, the ancien regime, is the right. Um, but I think that obscures some things. I think it's more helpful to talk about it in terms of liberalism. If we go back to um, what I talked about in the first part of episode five last time, um, the the revolution in 1848, which is after a long period of of sort of quasi-restoration after the, the Congress of Vienna um, and the Holy Alliance and so on. Then in 1848, you get this big liberal reaction and the revolutions all over Europe. Um, and they don't actually, uh, they're not as successful as, uh, um, as one might have expected and they're sort of put down everywhere. And especially in Germany, you have this, these high hopes that you're going to have a united Germany now with a liberal constitution and all these things. And that doesn't end up happening. You have the first sort of German nationalist liberal parliament in Frankfurt, but um, it, it disbands without having had really any real world effect. And there are two, there are two young men um, for whom that's a decisive event. And they, they become kind of big figures for what will then be um, in this sort of post uh, French revolution world, foundational figures for right and left. And the, the two are, are Karl Marx and Otto von Bismarck. And in both cases, they come to very similar conclusions. Looking at the, the German assembly, national assembly in the, the Paulskirche in, in Frankfurt, Bismarck says, um, in order to unite Germany, we don't need a, an assembly of, of uh, human watering cans, watering out cliche phrases. We need blood and iron. So the liberal idea that you can do this through agreement and and um, sort of legal procedure and so on, <clears throat> it's not going to work. You, what you need is violence. So Bismarck is sort of at the, the beginning of modern right-wing nationalism um, with its uh, very high tolerance for cruelty, as it were, and his, it's very illiberal. But on the other side, Marx comes to basically the same conclusion. He says this isn't the way to go. What you need is, is uh, a violent revolution in which all these uh, bourgeois liberals are just uh, liquidated. Yeah. Yes. And this is grist for future episodes probably, but I think that suffices for that one. So let's go into the next one. And I think this is a pretty serious objection. Absolutely. Yeah. So later liberals like, um, my, are, are like Kant, I think is the best example. Um, Right. Because Kant's going to explicitly say that um, a morality founded upon uh, sentiment or pity or something like that, Rousseau's naturalization of pity, isn't sufficient. We need an ethics uh, grounded on reason and duty. And if you follow Kant's so-called Copernican revolution in philosophy, uh, you can do that. I, I think actually pity uh, or, or the anti-cruelty principle, say, um, is it remains a first principle for Kant. Um uh, it, it, it appears in sort of a funny place when Kant is dealing with cruelty to animals. Um, however, I think it, it, that evinces the fact that cruelty is important with how you deal with all animate beings. Uh, you shouldn't be cruel. Now, among human beings, we can recognize once one another as rational, and this will generate the categorical imperative. But if we weren't rational... And uh, if you think about some human beings that Kant thought were uh, irrational, and then the list of that exclusions might grow quite large, um, the mentally infirm and women and so on and so forth. But when we're dealing with the subrational, okay, now cruelty again. So you find that cruelty is actually sort of in the basement of uh, Kant's ethical theory. He's just trying to build on that liberal foundation. So I don't want to say that all liberals 
um, are necessarily explicitly defending this ethical first principle. Some of them are actually trying to explicitly go beyond it, but they all are building on that foundation. And we can find we can find all sorts of heterogeneity within liberalism, but uh, let let's try to be clear about what the what the core is. And then the other part is. One thing we're doing here is doing an intellectual history and trying to say, well, what ideas were um, um, carried on and what ideas were sort of left behind. But we're also trying to to be true to a phenomenon. What what do the people around us think? What are their opinions? What are their beliefs? What are their attitudes sort of deep down? And I've met one Kantian in my life, but I'd, I'd leave it there. So I'm not necessarily, you know, even if Kant is sort of an odd duck, I'm not sure uh, or even if Kant rejects cruelty, he's a bit of an odd duck. And I'm not sure that he, he can help us get to the phenomenon of what people around us actually think like, even though his ideas are so influential. So we've got to sort of remember those two tasks we have. Yeah, I, I do think the anti-cruelty thesis as a, you know, I, I'm still, you know, sort of playing with it as an intellectual history. Does it really capture all the liberals? And, and particularly since Kant is such a, big figure. He's not some, you know, uh, obscure side, uh, sideshow or some footnote in liberalism. He's, he's, he's the real deal. But I think it's a descriptive claim about today. It really does, uh, get to something very essential and very important about what liberals are like. Yeah. I think you can't understand Kant's ethical project without his attempt to go beyond cruelty. And then one must sort of assess about uh, who's part of the kingdom of ends when he does go beyond cruelty, and then when uh, these sort of rational principles, uh, when when you attack them, what what will Kant and Kantians fall back upon? And Rawls is a good example of that. Um, when when you attack Rawls and you say, well, I actually, right. um, and and Rawls I think is the best example of a political philosopher in this sort of neo-Kantian tradition, especially familiar to people in the United States. Uh, you, you attack Rawls's notion of um, liberalism, political, not metaphysical. You say, well, well, Rawls, you have to have this notion of a person that's metaphysical. Where does that come from? You, you begin to attack things like that. And then the argument becomes, well, what's the alternative? Is the alternative religious war and violence? Are you countenancing cruelty? And that's when Rawls makes all the back. It's all backstopped with Schlar, right? And it's all backstopped with this sort of anti-cruelty yeah. principle. Um, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't cede the ground, the intellectual historian ground. To to some extent, what we're trying to do is present an intellectual history that's plausible, and I I wouldn't say that the most uh, archaic 16th century roots of liberalism that we find in Montaigne go away as a historical question. But then shifting gears as a sort of in the in the mode of social critic, I'd certainly think that those are the the uh, beliefs, opinions, and attitudes that are driving uh, the people we call liberals uh, around us today. And and this is stuff that we can get to in a moment too. When we we turn to Newman and sort of give a uh, almost an apologia for the liberal, and say you know he has his virtues as well as his faults. It's what makes him so dangerous. His his virtues. Yes. 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 They're <laughs> uh, they're they're apparent virtues <laughs> for the most part. But before we get there, I, I thought Susanna Black uh, uh, wrote a a short reaction. Uh, and she talked about authenticity and, and this idea of being true to yourself that sort of starts, uh, as far as I can tell, after the rationalists, sort of the romantic movement. Maybe we can say a few words about that. And what do the anti-cruelty folks uh, make of this? Do they run with it? Is it part of their ethic? Yeah. So the, the great book on this, I, I mentioned it uh, last week, is uh, Judith Sklar's Ordinary Vices. And Sklar's sort of giving you, well, here's Montaigne, here's Hobbes, here's this liberalism of fear, uh, but it has this positive ethical principle first, this anti-cruelty principle. That's why it's not totally Machiavellian. The order of chapters in Sklar's book, you know, chapter one, putting cruelty first. Chapter two, let's not be hypocritical, right? So there are other ordinary vices for Sklar, and she thinks that cruelty is, is first and most important. Now, one way you might think of that move to say that, well, first, liberals don't like cruelty. Second, liberals don't like hypocrisy. Uh, maybe the person best associated with that move would be Rousseau. 
who naturalizes uh, the oh. anti-cruelty principle. So we learn that in the state of nature, human beings are naturally good. Why are they naturally good? They're naturally good because they have pity. And we only learn, and in, in, because of our amapropa and civilization, to, we only have we have to learn to overcome our pity. So, really, for Rousseau, deep down, we're good, and this means authenticity is a good thing. This means being who you really are is being good, and just being true to yourself, you know, you're really good down there. Now, this doesn't square with a Christian notion of original sin, and of course, that's a, a bugbear. Um, for Rousseau, but I think Rousseau gives you a way to show how you go from putting cruelty first and this anti-cruelty principle to then this is why liberals can't abide hypocrisy. And that makes a good sort of descriptive claim. And I think the the point about hypocrisy is interesting because it, to my mind, it's sort of this, this point about authenticity sort of illustrates, uh, and this is something we've, we've talked about previously on the podcast, but when you start with toleration, it's easy to slide into skepticism. And uh, once you have sort of hollowed out the idea of nature, or at least privatized so much of religion and things like that, uh, the world starts to feel pretty cold and empty. And the romantic reaction is saying, no, we're not like that. We have to discover our own natures instead of thinking they have a common nature. So again, it, there's a grain of truth here that they run in the wrong direction with. And I think, I think it really does tie in with the Kantian notion of dignity, which is, uh, I mean, Kant is a great skeptic. He, he really doesn't think you know uh, essences at all. And and he replaces them in his ethics with ultimately, I think, with a notion of dignity. Surely, and a very different and a very different notion of dignity. I think this just goes. I'll make a, a brief point. This just goes to the difficulty of trying to take a floating signifier like liberalism and anchoring it to something, because when we're talking about liberals, we're talking about uh, John Locke, and we're talking about Immanuel Kant, and we're talking about John. We're talking about people from across the centuries with very different metaphysical presuppositions. Um, we're talking about people from across the century with very different political prescriptions um, that, they, that, that their ideas are supposed to. So when we're searching for a, a kind of lowest common denominator, we're, 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 and, and when we think there is one, right, and, and I'm putting this anti-cruelty principle as my best stab at a lowest common denominator, we're probably trying to find something that's not so intuitively obvious. Like, is something coming out of this huge, diverse, I think, Joel, last week you called it a family of thought rather than a single ideology. I think that's right. Does this, you know, what is the single strand of DNA that makes this a, a family? And then how does that influence how we think today uh, uh, in the sort of phenomenon of politics that goes on around us? So it's going to be sort of a vexing, and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to need to do the best we can, but... Some people will fall out, no doubt. Right. I want to give just one more observation to that before we maybe move to Newman. But one of um, Susanna Black's points was um, that when you're looking at uh, liberalism, you have to see what are what's the good that uh, that that they're um, really trying to uphold, which is part of the explanation for the the power of this way of thinking. And uh, one of our other commentary, uh, commentators, Rita von Donau, the one who was talking about right and left, he also asked about uh, our apparent dismissal of dignity, um, saying, well, isn't dignity you know, actually something that the church upholds to the dignity of uh, the human person and so on? So maybe we can say I'll just say a little bit about dignity. Dignity, um, as you were saying last time, Joel, Kant has a, a kind of absolute uh, notion of dignity that um, is, it's an on-off type thing. And um, dignity means originally um, the worthiness of someone to receive some good, um, especially the good of honor honor being the recognition of an excellence in another. So if someone is excellent, then they um, are worthy of being honored. And that's what dignity is. And it's certainly true that um, rational nature has a kind of 
natural dignity because it's the um, the highest nature in um, the bodily world uh, because we're created capable of knowing and loving God. Uh, rational nature is worthy of honor just in terms of what it is, but it's it, but um, it's worthy of honor, especially in terms of the good it's able to attain to. That is, because rational nature can attain to the common good of the whole universe, um, it's worthy of honor. But to the extent that someone puts himself against uh, that good, opposes that good, then he's no longer worthy of being honored. Uh, in, on the contrary, he's worthy of being dishonored. So, um, Yeah, vicious men are in some ways worse than beasts, right? Exactly. The vicious man is worse than a beast, St. Thomas says, which means that um, if you're vicious, if you're acting against the, the good of the universe and so on, and your own good, then um, you, to some extent, lose your dignity. Sometimes we forget that these early liberals are not only critics of Christianity, uh, especially when we're trying to perform a Christian critique of liberalism, but they're also uh, critics of a sort of aristocratic uh, ethos. Yeah. So uh, especially liberals or people in this liberal family from Hobbes to Montesquieu, because love of honor was seen to uh, um, fuel conflict. So if you love honor too much, I mean, this is just right politics book five. If you love honor too much, um, you're going to be factious. Uh, and so these sort of dueling aristocrats that love their, you know, are overly attached to their honor in some way. That's a very different notion of dignity. Um, than the than the liberal reinscription of dignity is some something that everybody has. I mean, maybe even for Kant, it's it's the thing that makes it impermissible for you to sell yourself voluntarily into slavery. Right? We have to right. the, the voluntarism has to end somewhere. Where we'll just stop at Würde and say, well, this is your worth. You have it objectively, and that's uh, I think even all the way to Rawls, you're going to say, well, where is this person? Why does this person have worth? And that'll be something like the one metaphysical presupposition that liberals. Uh, uh, have to make so. Yeah. On on that note, we're uh, was that that was the last of the objections, I think. Uh, so let's move on to Newman and his idea of a, a gentleman. Newman is obviously famously uh, anti-liberal. His well, perhaps the greatest, uh, one of the greatest, certainly Catholic writers against the liberals of the nineteenth century. Why don't you just sort of introduce his uh, stance on liberalism, and then we can move into uh, his uh, thoughts on the gentleman and and liberal education. So lots of times he's thought to be just a critic of theological liberalism. He says, uh, uh, this is at the end of the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, he's been talking about liberalism, 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 and then he, he has to add an appendix. Well, what do you mean by liberalism? What do you mean by the anti-dogmatic principle? And he writes, by liberalism, I mean false liberty of thought, or the exercise of thought upon matters in which, from the constitution of the human mind, thought cannot be brought to any successful issue. So liberalism is a kind of runaway rationalism, or reason that doesn't recognize the sort of rational limits of its own competence. Now, we I think that Newman also has a political critique of liberalism, or I should say a critique of political liberalism as well, but that's probably how he's best understood as a critic of liberalism. Yeah, that was exactly a text what, I wanted to bring up from? as well. That's from the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Um, okay. And yeah, as you say, that's a critique of yeah. theological liberalism, but you can see that um, that distrust of any authority in thought um, has political implications. And we talked a little bit last time about uh, liberty as a principle of liberalism, and this is one of the ways in which liberal liberty is understood. Everyone has the liberty to um, think their own thoughts about what the highest good is. Right. So... He's a consistent critic of liberalism, particularly religious liberalism, but because of that, I mean, because they're not unconnected, if you are a religious liberal, it's, it's I think, a pretty natural con consequence that one becomes a political liberal. Uh, because of that, 
Newman is very associated with anti-liberalism and, and the fight against the Catholic fight against liberalism in the 19th century. But in the idea of the university, he sort of starts talking about liberal education as a liberal thing. Maybe we, if, uh, maybe we can turn to that and look at what does he say about that? Yeah, there's certainly a connection there. I, I wanted to just briefly say that this argument between, well, what's theological liberalism, what's political liberalism, uh, and which is Newman attacking, y- you might also have a different idea about what liberalism is. You might think liberalism uh, is always polemically, uh, a, a, a polemic against political Catholicism, at least originally. We talked about this a little bit last time. And so if it first, in my view, sinks its teeth into uh, um, a Catholic sense of ethics, the natural law, um, and, and says, well, we can't agree about the natural law because th- just sheer human biodiversity. So the fact that pluralism means we need something easier. So let's talk about anti-cruelty. Well, it doesn't mean that liberalism stops there by critiquing the sort of ethics uh, or political ethics of, um, of the Catholic philosophers of the Middle Ages. It's going to go further. Uh, and, and by Newman's time, you know, you have you have Hegel, whom I think is a liberal, um, giving a, a philosophical explanation about what the Trinity is. So, uh, it you know, <laughs> liberalism doesn't doesn't just stop with with the natural law. Liberalism will eventually try to uh, uh, sort of attack and change and and twist uh, and, and reinscribe uh, ever more important Christian doctrines. So, I actually don't want to sort of admit of this difference between theological and political liberalism, from my vantage anyway. Yeah, if you if you look at the uh, uh, speech he gave at the uh, when he was made cardinal, is the great honor of his life, the Biglietto speech or Biglietto speech, how do you say it in Italian? Biglietto. Okay, uh, I'm not going to quote from it because it it it's worth reading. Uh, but there, he pretty clearly he starts he's talking about theological liberalism, but he makes the connection to what other people might call political liberalism very clear. And it's a very close, innate connection for Newman. And I think he's right in uh, uh, setting it out that way. Right. The conclusion of theological liberalism is a political conclusion, namely that the civil power should not be um, guided by religious truths. It should uh, try to to make a, a humane order without um, reference to the ultimate truths. What about liberal education? Isn't liberal education good and great? And isn't that like a, a Catholic thing? How could Newman, the opponent of liberalism, speak of liberal education as a a uh, fruit of liberalism itself? In the idea of the university, he's trying to convince um, the Irish, not least the Irish bishops, that they want to fund this university, support this university. Um, and you might detect that his audience has a sort of uh, a suspicion of, of liberal education, a, a suspicion of philosophical education, especially a kind of education that takes place outside of the, uh, outside of the seminaries. So... There's a, there's a way, I think, and this is in discourse aid of the idea of the university, um, that Newman has a really deep ambivalence about the liberal arts. And it's because of the uh, connection, I think, he draws in discourse eight between what he calls liberalism as the anti-dogmatic principle, reasons liberty, you're at liberty to discover um, truths on your own, and gentleness, or what it means to be a gentleman. And so the person who has the anti-dogmatic principle and, and be, believes, uh, uh, has, has delusions about the extensive competence of his reason will end up being the gentleman. Uh, now, what's sort of the connection between that? Um, well, I think the connection is something like if we can know the truth, then we should allow other people to search for the truths by themselves and not presume that we can correct them, live and let live. And this is, I think... Um, there's something else going on because he's talking about the sort of change of the idea of chivalry uh, that's going on from that sort of older aristocratic obsession with honor to a sort of more, uh, he says, effeminate, a more gentle um, um, 
kind of idea of the gentleman. So it's also sort of in keeping with his sort of uh, 19th century times. He, he thinks this can help saints and that a liberal education can augment um, the spiritual gifts that some of us have. But he also thinks that when that's taken as your sole horizon, then you're going to be a political liberal. You're going to think that, you know, live and let live. You have your truth. I have my truth is the end. And, uh, and this is where, you know, it's both Basil and Julian the apostate who have liberal educations. Uh, it'd be a given or a Shaftesbury or his examples at the end. Yeah. Uh, the quote at the end. He gives uh, the quote at the end, how he ends Discord 8 is, Basil and Julian were fellow students at the School of Athens, and one, one became the saint and doctor of the church, the other her scoffing and relentless foe, which is a, a great line. So speaking of Shaftesbury and Gibbon, he quotes uh, from Shaftesbury, and I think that's sort of, uh, maybe if we, we focus on that part, that's where he really connects this idea of the uh, philosophy and education with gentlemanliness. Right. He says that um, the, the, the liberally educated one is a friend of religious toleration, and that not only because his philosophy has taught him to look on all forms of faith with an impartial eye, but also from the gentleness and effeminacy of feeling, which is the attendant on civilization. So it turns out that uh, liberals um, are going to be uh, have have this great virtue. They're going to be civil. Now, if the horizon of your whole being is civil peace, it's going to turn out that this this ethical shortcut liberals make to well, let's just not be cruel, um, and 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 because we don't want pain and we want civil peace. If that's the be all and end all of your morality, you're going to fall fall far short of Christianity. You know, well scoffing at Christians all the way. Uh, because Christians have, so this is, I think, where Newman is uh, uh, at a kind of uh, a peak of his appreciation of liberal virtues, while reminding his audience that these aren't the same as uh, Christian virtues. He says such persons, far from tolerating fear as a principle and their apprehensions of religious and moral truth, will not be slow to call it simply gloom and superstition. Rather, a philosopher's, a gentleman's religion is of liberal and generous character. It is based upon honor. Vice is evil because it is unworthy, despicable, and odious. And the portrait he's painting here is really of the 19th century gentleman who's reserved and aloof and intensely proud. And his training, his refinement, and his education has made that pride an engine by which he won't do things that he would think would be sullying. And he's really masterfully contrasting that with true humility and true religion. I want to back up just a moment because I can already sense a sort of objection from, from you might call them the great books crowd, who are going to be saying, no, no, liberal education was a medieval thing. Uh, you know, think of who is more liberally educated than Thomas Aquinas or Albertus Magnus or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, Boethius was the master of the liberal arts and so forth. Uh, and I'm not quite certain that Newman is, when he's talking about philosophy here, for one thing, I think he's talking about a sort of 19th century English philosophy. But I want to sort of explore that objection for, for just a moment. Well, he, I mean, he begins that whole discourse, discourse eight in the idea of a university um, by saying that, reason when it's rightly used will be the handmaid of the faith and it will get you um, knowledge of the preambula of the faith, uh, the, those truths about God that you can know through natural reason. And it will, uh, it will help you in, in seeing the, um, the external motives of credibility uh, in, in the supernatural teaching of the church. So right reason um in the strictest sense, is going to be a help. But then he says, but we're not, let's not look at, at right reason in the abstract. Let's look at um, sort of the way that reason plays out uh, in the civilization that we have around us and see what the effects are given the various right. um, sources of distortion and, 
of um, things being too small, etc. Um, I think what he's doing, I, th- I think, I think you put your uh, uh, your finger right on it. What he's doing is looking at liberal arts education in a liberal society, where uh, the first thought is we can't force people to think anything. We can't have any sort of dogma. Everyone has to explore and discover for themselves. And whatever they explore and discover is okay. We have to be okay with it. Uh, There you have made philosophy first. And you've made human ingenuity is now put before divine revelation. So in a liberal society, this would, be, this would be my response to, to the objection I raised. I would say, in a liberal society, what he's saying about liberal arts is very true. In a medieval society, and, and you know, if you have St. Louis uh, as a king, if, you, if you're in before church and state, which we talked about a little bit last week, liberal arts are going to look very different. But again, if you're in a pagan society, it'll look different once again. I think that's, you, you, I don't know that the whole great books crowd is on board with a sort of medieval ordo discipline. No, I, right. they most certainly are not, although they think of themselves as being that way. And and without that, if you simply, if your idea of education is simply everything from Pindar and Euclid and uh, the, the pre-Socratics to now, you know, if you sort of have a vague humanism, here are all the great books, go dive right. in them and you will find the truth. That's not adequate. Uh, at least it's not adequate to find the kind of truth that the Ordo Discipline is supposed to uh, right. impart upon you or or illumine you to or, or uh, make you receptive towards. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that um, because there are a lot of uh, great book schools and great pro- books programs uh, where you choose your own classes, you choose your own course of study. And when that kind of becomes your horizon, I- I'm an educated person. I've read all these things. I'm a civilized person. I understand how much difference there is out there. I understand that you have to be impartial and like all these different cultures and these different uh, great geniuses disagreed. So really, let's just get along. This is the sort of way that I think Newman is discussing the liberal arts. And quite frankly, I think it's not only accurate to 19th century England. <laughs> I think it's accurate to uh, the way most uh, uh, self-described liberal arts majors today uh, go about their business. Oh, absolutely. Because you see, particularly there, I mean, here's a virtue of them. They have read great thinkers who've come to all sorts of different opinions at different periods of time. So they have a sort of broadness of mind and are able to take different views in stride and discuss with different views. And uh, it, it really does wonders to prevent. Uh, narrow parochial prejudice in a certain sense from reigning. On the other hand, while it might be good, it's not quite the same thing as being a Christian, which is his point. And I think his... uh... So here's another thing I wondered about this. He he describes Shaftesbury, who's such a gentleman, and he says, essentially, the gentleman is one who never... uh, How does he say it? never gives pain, uh, something like that. Uh, what I wonder, it, before we turn to integralism versus liberalism, is you see that this is sort of the classical liberal, the liberal arts guy. You even see it with a lot of what you might call the uh, neo-Catholics. I won't, I won't name names, but we know, we know who they are who are very broad-minded about religion and stuff like that. These are their virtues. But if you look at, say, progressive left liberals, yes, they have that anti-cruelty principle, but it seems to me that they're not very gentlemanly, at least not at this moment. They're screaming and uh, rioting, and this causes people, you know, uh, the uh, suit and tie crowd gets very uh, (laughs) worried about all this. Yeah, let me um, suggest one, uh, one way of thinking about that. I, I think liberal. I think Christians, properly understood, embrace the anti-cruelty principle. Only right. Um, yeah, uh, Jesus on the road to Jerusalem when the young man says, uh, 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 I, I'll, "I'll come follow you. I just want time to bury my father." 
Now, in the eyes of the world, when someone says, well, let the dead bury the dead, kid, <laughs> it, it seems cruel, it seems insensitive to his right. suffering, right? Uh, of course, I don't think Christians are going to want to bite the bullet and say that Jesus was cruel. Uh, Jesus is making a, a sharp exhortation because he knows that the fate of this young man's soul uh, hangs upon whether he's going to follow Jesus or not. And and the kinder thing to do is right. this tough love. Or just think about the the ruler-wielding nun of boomer legend, right? Yeah, she's going to wrap right. you on your hands, but it's going to be good for you in the end. I think liberal society, um, as, as we've, you know, in 300 years of liberal culture, we, we've had less and less tolerance for this kind of, we're becoming increasingly short-sighted about um, uh, tough love or even the appearance of cruelty. And so I think your liberal arts major today uh, who, or your humanities major that they don't seem very gentlemanly at all. As a matter of fact, they're reading, um, they're reading their Foucault. They're learning about the micro, they're, they're learning about these, these microaggressions. They're learning about these right. ways that were cruel in such subtle ways and they're uncovering them and becoming indignant about them. This is the, I see this as the, like intensification of liberalism that, you know, we're learning that calling a, um, a, an, an infant in the hospital to, to, to name, to call it a male or a female, we're learning that this is cruel or setting them up for a life of cruelty. Right. So it's sort of, um, uh, a hyper intensification or really, uh, uh, we, we have a sort of technology now using t tools like Foucault, I suppose, uh, uh, Judith Butler, people like, and, and this is sort of, um, uh, the the spear point of liberalism, yeah, uh, and I think they see themselves as anti-cruel. But you know, it's not about free speech. We're learning this now. It's about you know, it's about not being cruel. Disagreement is cruel. Free speech can be Absolutely. cruel. This is this is really an important point that um, that it's really the Christian, the true Christian, who is um, in the real, who is against the the, the truest cruelty, because it's only a few. If you have a, as that as you brilliantly gave in that example, Felix from the gospel, it's only if you really know what the true good is that you can know um, what is evil for someone, what's bad for someone, and that you can really avoid um, cruelty to them. And this is um, to go back to that question we had about why we talk about liberalism and not about right and left. This is uh, also what distinguishes, I would say our position as uh, anti-liberal Catholics or integralists from the right in the, uh, in the post uh, the post revolutionary sense, say Bismarck's blood and iron, right with Bismarck, he's willing to be cruel, not for the true good of um, the persons to whom he's being cruel, but for uh, this, uh, ideal of, of um, the nation or, or whatever, some, some totalitarian ideal. And uh, with us, we're, we're willing to tolerate what would appear cruel to the liberal, but it's really for the sake of, of the truest good of the person um, to whom we're saying, let the dead bury the dead. At the end of the day, it's those who remember our last end against the last men. Right. I thought Pope, I thought Pope Benedict, uh, and I can't remember when he said it, but he he said this a few times in his papacy or, or words to these effect. And I thought it was really beautiful and true, and something that probably gets overlooked too much by too much of the church these days, which is that there was sort of a danger after Vatican II to forget that discipline and even punishment isn't inflicted just out of a sense of revenge, but sure. the driving right. factor is love behind it. Uh, and I think this is true. And this is why, if you read St. John, the importance of love is so central in his thought. And yet Christ will say things like, uh, you must hate your mother, you must hate your father. Uh, right. I come not to bring peace, but the sword. And, you know, things like, let the dead bury their dead, which seem to outsiders, which seem to liberals like cruelty. And it's why liberals have always been such staunch anti-Catholics. 
And it's why they have to uh, reread the scriptures and, and create a hermeneutic where, no, Jesus is about gentleness and it's about overcoming the sort of cruelty of the Pharisees and these sort of uh, reli the objective religious norms and laws that were actually very cruel to people. You know, it's about forgiving the harlots and, and so on and so forth. Jesus was woke. It's essentially how they now want to read him. I'm interested, finally, in um, uh, how we understand the, the difference between liberalism uh, and, and integralism uh, very briefly, because while, while we've talked a little bit so far about how Christians ought to understand cruelty versus how the world sees cruelty, and we've sort of discussed how this may or may not be exactly what's the rub with liberalism today, uh, integralism strikes me as something a little bit different, um, because... Uh, it actually turns out that neither liberalism nor integralism are anything like regime types. They're not like uh, democracy. They're not like monarchy. Right. Um, liberalism, if it's the way we've described it, is a, is a sort of ethical first principle uh, underneath sometimes um, a whole family of political ideologies that are uh, regnant out there, say. Right. And then integralism, on the other hand, seems to me to be mostly a, a thought about a church-state relationship and not as specific uh, as what Aristotle would call a regime. But maybe you and, and Pater could uh, uh, think, talk a little bit about how you see that relationship. Well, before I, because I think Pater should really answer it, I, I'll just put a, a tiny note here, which is that uh, well, two things. One is I think you're exactly right. Liberalism is not a regime, but you see in its sort of toleration principles and its anti-cruelty principles that it makes sense that it pretty much works out to be a, a ethic that thinks of democracy as the best regime and tends towards democratic forms of government or, or roughly. Unless the, unless the people are cruel. There are a lot of liberals out right. there that are would be happy with a sort of, you know, technocratic civil uh, rights. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and the other thing is, I'd say, I think you're right. Integralism, you know, most what's most distinctive is the church state relationship. But the other thing that is distinctive these days is that integralism proposes a politics of the common good rather than a politics of private goods where the political community is just protecting them. Yeah, in a way, it's it's the opposite of, I mean, I think in a way, integralism and liberalism are very, um, they're both not... Uh, political regimes, but they, they both have the sort of the same relation to political regimes because liberalism um, is founded on the one hand in, in this sort of anti-cruelty principle, but it's founded on the other hand in, as we said last time as well, an ideal of liberty that excludes um, consideration of the, uh, the final end of human life right. from the political sphere. And integralism is exactly the opposite. It, it's the claim that politics has to be, uh, has to take as its first principle what's really good for human beings and what's finally good for them. Both uh, temporal happiness, um, which is the immediate common good of, of uh, political life, according to, to uh, St. Thomas, and um, then finally also supernatural happiness, eternal happiness, which is why it's also a doctrine about the relation of church and state. A good, a good thing here is, is a piece that Potter wrote some time ago on, on the Josias. Uh, I think it's called Two Contrasting Concepts of Liberty. And the Christian, the integralist view of liberty is really freedom from sin, freedom. Uh, so the, the attainment of your end, the perfection of your nature both naturally and uh, uh, supernaturally, whereas the liberal uh, version of freedom is is generally, I mean, more can be said about it, but it's it's uh, license essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, we can go to Isaiah Berlin's famous distinction between um, positive and negative liberty, and even though he sees some liberals as uh, having a kind of positive liberty, the, um, the, the sort of the thickest positive liberty is one that, that sees, um, the, the end of human life as being determined and, uh, 
the, the will is determined to one final end and freedom respects the means. And if you're free, it means you know what the true end of human life is and you're able to, to choose those means. My question is, what, once we come to this, say, philosophical agreement about um, what our final end is and in what our freedom consists, we still have a prudential question about what kind of regime it would be best to live in. Um, and I, I, I think particularly sure. about um, uh, Aristotle's politics and, and the, you know, best is said in four ways. And there's sort of the there's right. the ailing city that you live in, and 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 one of the things is the the best that your city can really attain, and that's what the prudent man uh, should aim for. I think the liberal response to integralism is often something like, "Well, you're a few Catholics, you have this idea." I'm talking about countries like the United States, with, which have never had a kind right. of Catholic majority. I mean, we're, we're very far from this uh, coming to some sort of agreement on these matters, and the idea right. of um, uh, um, you know, taking power in some undemocratic way is also, you know, seems a bit fanciful. So it seems as if um, the liberal dictum is, well, you can't possibly get to the end of the integral state in the United States without violence. Violence would mean cruelty. And so obviously this is a kind of uh, non-starter. But this is where I think the range of... Um, uh, political postures recommended by the church, Leo XIII, the sort of Raleigh-Mont debate, and these pr prudential debates about whether it's best to have an integralist regime or what the next best is, I take this to be Raleigh-Mont, right? Or what the next best is, a hope that your society can actually generate Christian statesmen. Or then fourth and worst is that you do find yourself in a state of persecution and it's absolutely impossible to imagine uh, an anonymous, a, a Christian, and I was going to say anonymously Christian, but uh, um, that's not Leo's language. Leo's, Leo doesn't use the Rotarian language. What does Leo say? Leo says, by, by, a, by a fortunate inconsistency, you find yourself with a Christian statesman. And I think this is behind a lot of our arguments in the United States. Um, you know, the sort of Rod Dreher position Maybe now we're in we're in persecution, and we we have to uh, think about a post liberal politics because we can't even imagine having a Christian state. Or um, those who might say, like in the American Solidarity Party, oh well, no, we can create a movement because really deep down we're some kind of Christian people, and we can sort of take our country back in that way, uh, which I see is a little bit more like Raleigh-Mont, although you know not a Catholic people. So, what do you think about those uh, prudential questions? Um, you know, in this debate. Well, I think the Leo's idea of Raymond is that um, by uh, accepting the legitimacy of the French Republic, um, French Catholics can then use the political procedures that are in place to transform the French Republic into um, a truly Catholic state that's really ordered to um, the true common good. Um, and one danger there, and here here we, maybe we go back to that, uh, something you mentioned last time, namely the difference of between Republican and liberal uh, ideas of freedom. Um, if the French Republic were really Republican in the in the way that you had put it, before a classically Republican uh, republic, then I think that you would have uh, a good shot at success with a strategy of Raymond. But to the extent that it's liberal, it's a very dangerous strategy because participation in a liberal um, political order tends to uh, colonize, as it were, the the hearts and minds of the ones who are participating in it in it and is very and is turning them into liberals. So the the historical experience seems to be that um, the strategy tends to backfire. And instead of transforming liberal republics into uh, Catholic republics, it turns Catholics into liberals. And on that note, I think we're out of time. But thank you so much, Felix. Thank you, Potter, for another great discussion. Yeah, thank you. We'll have yeah, to thank you both. We'll have to talk about Ralamont some other time more at length, but uh, that's all for this week of the Josiah Podcast. <laughs>